Hi everybody, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Thursday, July 16th, 2009, and welcome to the Future of Education. Tonight our guests are Terry Moe and John Chubb, uh, talking about their new book, Liberating Learning. The full title is Liberating Learning, Technology, Politics, and the Future of American Education. I'll introduce them in just a minute, but first I want to make sure that you're aware that we have a couple of fun things coming up. In the new conversations.net interview series, uh, yesterday I interviewed Douglas Rushkoff, uh, and that's a lot of fun. Uh, Clay Shirky's coming up. Doc Searles is coming up. And then in futureofeducation.com, we've got a neat series starting up. Uh, we've got Future of Student Journalism, which we're doing a special session I'm doing with Leah Clapman from the um, McNeil Air News Hour. We're going to do a session on educational town hall meetings with Grace Rubenstein from Edutopia. And John Seeley Brown and David Thornburg are coming in. Oh, is the are you still hearing music? Is somebody still hearing music? You are. You need to close that window, but I closed it down, so I should have closed down for you. Okay, if this is your first time at Illuminate, I want to make sure that you know a little bit about this environment. This is an interactive environment. You have the ability to respond here. One way is you can use the emoticons at the bottom of the participant window. You'll see a clapping hand, a smiley face, a confused look, or a thumbs down. So would somebody put in the text for George that he may need to close that window himself because I don't think the web window is still running for me. And also next to those emoticons is a little a hand with a green up arrow. And that's how you raise your hand to indicate that you'd like to say something. If you think you'd like to ask a question or make a comment tonight, please go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone is working. What will happen is you'll raise your hand, we'll give you the mic, and then you'll actually go into that audio box below the participant window and click on the microphone to turn your mic on. And we'll give directions at the time. Looks like George is okay now. Uh, there's also a green check and a red X at the bottom of the participant window, and that's a way for the authors to ask you a question and get a response from you. We can do some polling as well, but typically the yes and no work quite well. Um, and you can leave messages in. So poor George is having music again. George, I might suggest you just log out and log back in. Um, you can leave a message in the chat window. You can actually leave messages to people individually in the chat, but do know that Terry and I, as moderators, will see all of those messages. They come through to us completely. Um, I like the chat, uh, particularly in these sessions, and I find it's easier to follow the chat if you go up to View Layouts and select the Wide Layout. I always watch these shows in the Wide Layout. Okay, so this is a chance for you to participate a little at the very beginning. You can uh, indicate where you're listening in from on the map. To do so, look for the little wand with the red star at the end, which is to the left of the map, and you can click on that and then click on the map. See where you're listening from. Be seeing all uh, Barb looks like she's away, but at least we have one from Australia. It's also kind of fun to put in the chat window um, city that you're listening from and what the temperature is. It's been a toasty 105 here in Sacramento. Okay, so we have a U.S. audience tonight, although Barb clearly is from from Oz. Oh, to be in the Bay Area again, Rushton. Okay, here's a U.S. map. You can do the same thing. Just click on the map where you are. Gives us a little better view of where you are in the United States. 
Okay, thanks everyone. So the book is Liberating Learning uh, with Terry Moe and John Chubb. My understanding is that uh, in your previous book, John, you took first spot and Terry took second because of uh, alphabetical protocol. So you switched it this time. Um, Terry, could I get you to introduce yourself uh, briefly and then and John will have you do the same? Well, okay, I'm Terry Moe. I'm uh, uh, a professor of political science at Stanford University. I'm also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Um, you know, I've been studying education since the early 1980s. Uh, it's hard to believe I'm that old, but uh, I am. And uh, I also, uh, within political science, I, I study bureaucracy and uh, the presidency and uh, American politics more generally. John, can we get the same from you? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, uh, I have a PhD in political science. Uh, actually, uh, went to graduate school uh, with Terry. That's where we met and, uh, and became friends and started uh, developing developing some common interests. Uh, we actually were both uh, on the faculty at Stanford University in the, in the uh, early 1980s, and then both of us. Excuse me. Moved on to Washington D.C. to the Brookings Institution, a think tank, uh, later in the 80s, and it was there that we uh, wrote the book that you mentioned at the outset, "Politics, Markets, and America's Schools," uh, which laid out some of the impediments to improving American education and, and recommended uh, some radical, at the time, uh, reforms focusing on uh, more competition and choice. Um, but in the early 1990s, uh, I took a different uh, route than Terry. I left academia full time and was one of the founders of the Edison Project, which um, was uh, one of the first uh, school management, uh, whole school management, and comprehensive school reform initiatives uh, in the early 1990s. And I've been part of uh, part of Edison um, as chief education officer and uh, and other positions uh, over the last uh, over the last 17 uh, over the last 17 years. Uh, most recently um, at Edison, which is now called Edison Learning, um, I've been responsible for our new product development and business development, and uh, that's where I developed uh, a really keen interest in uh, in education technology, uh, and uh, a lot of that experience uh, influenced influenced my thinking and uh, influenced uh, my desire to work with Terry on this new book. Uh, like Terry, um, I do spend some time uh, at the Hoover Institution where I'm a visiting fellow and part of a, an education task force out there that's been going on for, uh, for about a decade uh, with, other, uh, with other leading education, education scholars. So what was the thesis of uh, politics, markets, and America's schools? Terry, you want to take it? Well, let's see. Um, what we were really trying to do uh, was to explain how politics uh, affects um, education and why it is that a politics um, that's driven uh, by special interests uh, leads to an education system um, that has a very difficult time um, uh, arriving at a truly effective organization for schools. Um, and uh, our solution was to try to uh, remove 
this goal as much as possible um, from this sort of top-down political control uh, through a choice system um, that would uh, uh, really uh, put power in the hands of, of parents um, and uh, give the school strong incentives uh, to be more effective. Um, rather than simply relying on the top-down system to do that and it, because it has traditionally done it so poorly. So, Terry, be sure to turn your I would, uh, uh, add. so this book clearly carries that theme through. In fact, it sort of it's, it seems to be half of the new book. How was that thesis received at the time? Well, uh, you know, it, interestingly, um, uh, at the time, at the time, the book uh, gained a lot of attention, and I think it gained, I think it gained attention. Well, for various reasons, partly just being at the right, you know, the right place at the right time. Uh, but I think that um, the reason the book did gain a quite a bit of attention is that at least half, <laughs> at least half of the book's thesis, uh, people believed. Um, just to elaborate a little bit on what Terry said, um, the, the book included a very careful analysis of what you know what caused high achieving and low achieving schools, and what we found were a were a range of qualities that resonated with with all kinds of uh, scholars and educators. We found that high achievement was associated with uh, with strong leadership, with um, uh, a strong uh, sense of collegiality and teamwork on the part of teachers, uh, high um, uh, rigorous rigorous academic standards, you know the kinds of things that people uh, often describe even today as characteristics of effective schools. But what we found is that uh, those characteristics were very, uh, were, were, were inversely related to the amount of uh, bureaucracy in the system. The more bureaucratic the system, the weaker the leadership, the less the collegiality among the teachers, the weaker the standards. Uh, and people, that also resonated with people. And they kind of said, yeah, yeah, the system, if you will, does get in the way of uh, the qualities that we need to find in, in good schools. And then the final thing that we said, and this is where it got controversial, was that um, it's not possible in this political system to legislate away the bureaucracy because the bureaucracy gets created as uh, interest groups vie for control of the schools and the political process. So our answer to that was uh, let's not run the schools from the top down. Let's Let's you know. Let's use the political process to really change the system. Get get away from a top-down system and, and create one based on markets. And so, we actually put together in 1990 the, one of the first models for a uh, for a charter type system before the first charter laws were passed. And that part of the book was very controversial. So, kind of in a nutshell, people thought that we kind of nailed uh, the nailed a lot of the performance issues in schools. They just didn't like our remedy. Uh, because there's a, you know obviously a lot a lot of vested interest in the current system. So I understood the politics argument. It was interesting though. My reaction was uh, maybe come maybe brought to me to the same conclusion. But my reaction was that that people have very different views of what education is, and and no matter what you tried to do, one system was never going to address all of those needs. Which brought me to the same conclusion, but I didn't have the same sense of uh, the political battle. Over the course of the years since that book was written, has that sense of the resistance of politics been uh, strengthened for both of you? 
Well, I, speaking for myself, I, I think John probably agrees. Um, I think it's, it's quite clear um, that special interests are enormously powerful in the politics of education. And in particular, uh, the teachers' unions are enormously powerful. Uh, also, um, in general, uh, public officials are highly responsive to power in the political process. You know, any notion that public officials are, are, are just uh, in office to pursue the public interest and do what's right for society uh, is wrong. It has nothing to do with what political scientists uh, uh, think is going on, and it's not what's going on. Um, and so uh, in education, the problem then is that uh, you know, we have a system that's governed through politics, but uh, uh, the people who are doing the governing are responding to power and uh, to the teachers' unions in particular. Uh, the unions have been blocking uh, major reforms for the last quarter century. And none of this really has anything to do with what's best for kids or what's best for a quality education in America's schools. And that's the real dilemma of political governance. Right? How can we get away from special interest politics and power as a nation and try to do what's best for children and for schools? Okay, so yeah, Paul, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I, go ahead, uh, John. I was just going to say, I mean, everything Terry's saying, I, I agree with. Um, I would just, I would illustrate it um, in a in a in a in a di in an additional way. I think over the last uh, 20 years, a consensus has emerged among a lot of thoughtful people about the kinds of things that would help our schools. And so, I think that there is a strong consensus that it's important for a curriculum to be driven by high standards, or for there to be accountability for performance or you know, everybody knows that teachers are the most important thing in schools, and you should be able to uh, get rid of teachers who aren't doing a good job, you know, just to cite, you know, cite examples. Or you know, if we have a shortage of teachers in a particular area, we, you know, we ought to be able to pay more for the people that we really need you know, in math and science or special education. These are ideas that, that, uh, that the public, that education experts, you know, everybody thinks are you know, good ideas. If you're running a school, these are the kinds of things you'd want. But um, we've only been able to adopt them as a nation in very, very watered-down form. And the reason is not that, uh, not that thoughtful people don't think they're good ideas. The reason is that they are opposed uh, vigorously by, the, uh, by the, the very powerful interests that, uh, that support the system. And that's, I mean, that's, that's where it just becomes plain. It, it, we continue as a country to engage in practices that almost every thoughtful person knows are counterproductive. And the reason is just that the people, the people in power have enough power to keep it that way. I'm very interested to see in the chat uh, if our audience agrees and, and what their feelings are. Let's, let's talk about the second half then of the book. If the first half is, uh, the difficulty of politics. What's the second half? What's the other big idea from liberating learning? I'll I'll, I'll kick that off. Um, it's you know it's it's very clear um, that in every uh, every area of society, every area of uh, of commerce, um, every area of other professional activity, that technology um, has brought about in, in improvements in productivity, 
um, improvements in effectiveness and efficiency. Um, everywhere around us, technology is um, is providing for a better way of better way of life. You can argue about details, but it but it but it has. In education, um, that hasn't happened. Uh, uh, classrooms and schools are still run almost exactly as they have been uh, for a very, very uh, long time. Um, but what struck, uh, what's just struck me certainly in my professional practice and uh, has uh, struck Terry as well in his research is that technology has now reached a point where it absolutely can make a big difference uh, for kids and for schools. Uh, it's possible through online technology to uh, reach kids with multimedia presentations, to tailor uh, instructional programs to their absolutely to their individual needs. Uh, it's possible for kids to proceed uh, at their own at their own pace. It's also possible for all of these things to be done in a way that is less expensive than uh, than traditional than traditional than traditional schools. Um, there's just enormous potential now, finally, for technology to uh, realize real gains and improvements for for kids. And um, the uh, what the book takes up is partly just you know providing evidence about uh, evidence and illustrations about all the things that technology can do, and we're happy to talk about that more, obviously. But then we take up the question: so if there is so much potential out there. You know why isn't it happening, and uh, you know, and and is, is something eventually going to give? And what we show is that the same political forces that have blocked other kinds of uh, other kinds of meaningful reforms in education are also blocking the adoption of technology. But um, to to cut to the chase, we believe that technology is uh, is the kind of irresistible force outside of education that ultimately. Um, will break, but will break down these political barriers, and will uh, sometime within our lifetimes actually uh, change education in, in, in fundamental ways for the better. Barry, I don't know if you're able to see the the dozen or so um, messages that have appeared in the chat room. I'd be interested in your description of the same thing that John just talked about, but also wondering if you want to address anything that's come up in the chat. I haven't been able to read what's going on in the chat, so I can't address them. Uh, if you want to summarize a few of them, I'd be happy to address any of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, uh, I'd like to make one point first, if I could, uh, and I'm going to turn your mic off there, Terry, and you can turn it back on when you're ready. Um, I got to turn it back off there. I turned it off. Would you mind turning it off? It is on. Oh, there we go. So. Um, uh, so I interviewed Michael Horn, uh, who was one of the co-authors of Disrupting Class, and it was very interesting because uh, it felt as though in, in an arena in which there's a disruptive innovation, and let's say that's technology or the new technologies of the web or online learning, it seems as though resistance can actually have a positive effect, which is you don't know which of the dozens or hundreds of new technologies are actually going to make a true difference. And so the system resists until something is clearly uh, ready to make a difference and it comes from the outside in. Is there any way to look at what's happening in American education? I know that's not your perspective, but is any of it good? Is any of that resistance actually helpful? Well, uh, I'll, I'll start it and John can uh, jump in. I, I think 
basically, um, first to go back to the Michael Horn Christensen argument, you know, what, what they're basically saying is that um, technology is going to carry the day eventually and create disruptive innovation simply because of all the benefits that it can provide. Right? And people within the education system will ultimately be won over by it and will start adopting it. Uh, but um, where they're coming from is uh, from a thought process that's rooted in the private sector. Right? They're, they're not talking about uh, in a deep way the, the public sector because the public sector is run by government and politics. And it isn't enough to have um, uh, something that is hugely beneficial because that uh, doesn't simply um, uh, persuade politicians and interest groups that they should adopt it. In this case, uh, technology is very threatening uh, to the powers that be in the current system because when kids in large numbers uh, begin learning online, um, what happens is that um, uh, the teachers can be anywhere, the schools can be anywhere, and money begins to flow out of the districts and jobs flow out of the districts. And that is the ultimate threat, um, not only to the districts, but to the teachers' unions. And so they are trying to bottle this thing up. And so that's the fundamental difference, really, between our analysis and uh, Horn and Christensen. Um, what we're trying to do is, is to talk about the way things really happen in the public education system. And um, basically, the kind of resistance um, that's, that's being um, exerted in the political process um, it, right now is very effective at keeping technology at a minimum. And what we say is that over the long haul, they're, they're going to be unable to stop this. But in the short term, they really are uh, bottling it up and stifling it. It's a very a negative thing. It's not a positive thing. So that might be a good place to segue to uh, Pennsylvania Cyber Charter. I, I was in Pennsylvania several times this year, and I would hear these ads on the radio for Pennsylvania Cyber Charter. And so I got to a uh, spot where I was doing a workshop for educators and uh, asked, is this actually having an impact on you? And the answer was a resounding yes. We're losing students like flies. And they actually described what I think you describe in the book. They said, we're, built, we're going to build a new building where students can come who are doing the cyber charter, the online schoolwork, but they can actually come to the physical building. So does Pennsylvania serve as a good model here? I, that's a, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I think it's actually a, I think it's a, a terrific model of uh, the argument that we've that we've that we part of what we laid out. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, and Ohio uh, are the two most well-developed uh, cyber charter schools. Florida also has a huge online state-sponsored school, but in the area of in the area of uh, uh, online charter schools, Pennsylvania and Ohio are the are the two leaders with the most with the most uh, kids involved and. Uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, the schools go back now over over 10 years. Uh, PA Cyber, uh, which we write about in the book, has some 8,000 uh, 8, uh, kids enrolled in it now, and there are several others that are of that magnitude. I think 20,000 or 20,000 or so kids in Pennsylvania are now enrolled full time in cyber charter schools. Um, 
the initial response to uh, these online schools, which Terry and I described, was for uh, the unions and so forth to go to court, to go to the legislature, to try to get them shut down, to try to get their funding uh, slashed so that they wouldn't be economically viable. Um, ultimately, that's like trying to put a genie back in a bottle. So what is actually happening now in Pennsylvania is that, uh, is that districts and intermediate units that, that is, you know, that the, uh, the service centers that represent multiple districts are in the process of trying to organize uh, online schools. And they, they realize that uh, they, can't, they can't do this in a, in a small way if they're going to be able to compete. Uh, lots, lots of districts offer online courses around the edges. You, know, you can grab an advanced placement class, or if you've dropped out, you can come back in and take uh, a class that will allow you to, to make up credit. Uh, but it's, it's all marginal, and, it's, and frankly, it's, uh, it's not very sophisticated uh, and not, not the best uses of technology. But what, the, uh, what districts are, are realizing is that if you want to compete with a cyber charter school, you have to create a complete online environment, a social environment, a completely engaging experience for parents and for kids, uh, you know, a virtual, a virtual school. And so um, there are examples now, Central Pennsylvania, for example, the, the Capital Area Intermediate Unit is uh, very ambitiously launching uh, an online school on behalf of its, uh, its, member, its member districts. Um, and what's, what's important about this is that, um, is, that, uh, is that first, this would not have happened without the competition from the cyber charters. Um, this is a competitive response, a defensive response on the part uh, of the school of the school districts. And um, this kind of competition, this desire to hold on to your kids, is what is is, is part of the process that's going to force uh, a change a, a change in the politics. Uh, I mean, I, I, the the unions that represent teachers in Central Pennsylvania uh, would love to put the genie back in the bottle, hold on to their kids, and hold on to their jobs. But unless they change what they're doing, um, they're going to lose more jobs. So this competitive process is ultimately uh, good for the kids because to compete for kids, they've got to build better online schools and better content, more effective. Um, it's good for the taxpayers because uh, there, are, there are economies to be realized in this kind of education. And um, if this competitive process will help, uh, will, will accelerate the process of uh, introducing technology into a system that without the competition, uh, would have been, you know, decades adopting. So the the questions are flying by in the chat, even too fast for me to see them. This is fascinating. What kind of response this is generating? What I'd like to do is to kind of flush out the remainder of the thesis of the book, and then give people a chance to grab the mic and ask some questions. I'd like to ask about Pennsylvania. Are you seeing the negative impacts of politics that you describe in the book in Pennsylvania? And it, it, there is some mention in the chat that I feel you're being too hard on unions. So what, what, what's actually happening in Pennsylvania, and does it uh, describe what you're thinking of, what you're just sharing in the book? Well, I'll, I'll just be brief. I mean, the, uh, when the cyber charters opened, um, uh, they, they didn't open with any particular ambition. Um, the PA, PA Cyber opened to try to serve the kids of a small school district in west, western Pennsylvania uh, that had lost its economic base and was struggling to stay afloat. 
Um, PA Cyber is sponsored by you know by a by a school district. They weren't uh, trying to be predatory, um, but people began flocking to it. And uh, uh, PA Virtual, which is run by uh, the company K12, or run run uh, with their support, they they opened up to uh, to support the um, uh, the homeschooling market. So the, the the charter schools were set up to meet uh, needs that were separate from the traditional public education system, but they became popular and people began leaving the public education system. So what happened then um, was not that that public educators said, well, we have to figure out what the, you know, what the, the best response should be. The, the, um, the response was largely political. Uh, there were court efforts to try to uh, challenge the laws under which they were operating. Uh, there were legislative battles to, to, to cut the funding. Uh, and in fact, that was, um, that was successful, um, not to the point that the charters couldn't operate, but it, it was successful. Um, and this is this is what Terry and I uh, what Terry and I have described. Now, um, school districts are trying to offer opportunities online. This is not a not a black and white tale, or you know, or good and evil. Um, but the but the process of serving the parents and serving the kids moves much more slowly in the public sector than it would in the private, because in the public sector, um, it's possible for people with a stake in the system to use the political process to, uh, to protect it. You know, in, in every other industry where technology has promised you know, benefits to the consumer but has threatened jobs, you know, people fight to save their jobs. It's, 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 a, you know, it's a natural thing. But in the private sector, you, you, can't, you can't hold back competition. You have, to, you have to deal with it. But in the public sector, there's this political protectionism um, that slows down the systems, the systems response. And Pennsylvania is, is a good example. I'll, I'll just say one more thing and shut up. Terry and I have focused on unions in the book because unions uh, in in the education system, representing teachers, are by far and away the most powerful. Um, but that doesn't mean that boards of education or administrators or you know others with a stake in the system aren't you know aren't fighting the same fight. Um, it's just that uh, the unions are the best illustration of the of the um, of the incredible influence that the establishment has. I'd like to add just a, a few quick points. I think uh, you know, in when you write about the politics of education uh, as we do, and write about it honestly, it's impossible not to focus on the teachers' unions. I think anybody who knows a lot about the politics of education knows that the teachers unions are by far, no comparison, the most powerful participants in the political process. They have four million members nationwide. They have organizations in every state in the country. They have activists in every political district in the country. They are the top political contributors at the federal level and in most of the American states. Uh, so if you look around at what's going on in the politics of virtual schools, it is in fact the unions that are leading the charge. And you know, it almost doesn't matter what issue you pick if it has to do with fundamental change, you know, whether it's charter schools or vouchers or accountability. You know, it's the teachers' unions that are leading the charge. And so 
you know, we don't single out the, the unions because we're anti-union. We single out the unions because we really want to explain what's going on in American education. And it's impossible to explain these things without focusing on the union. Okay, so uh, I'm sorry, like I discussed, I, I want to kind of round out the book and then and give us at least 20 plus minutes for Q&A. And it looks like we're going to have some good Q&A. Um, I'm not normally on this. I'm normally on the side of the incredible uh, transformative effects of technology and education. But I want to ask a question. I listened to a talk that Malcolm Gladwell gave recently, and he talked a lot about just the need for time and you know, reference to KIPP schools. And I think there's a sense uh, from a lot of people that this really isn't about technology. Even if technology has transformed business, it's not going to transform education. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, my my response uh, grows out of looking at the looking at the specific things that technology can do uh, to help. Um, you know, I, I look at um, you know, you, I, I look at what a uh, what a multimedia instructional program with some support of teachers online or uh, some support from teachers face to face can do to help kids learn. Um, kids get to see get to see and experience and manipulate uh, new information um, in various in various forms. Um, they get, to, they get to hear lessons. They get to read lessons. They get to see uh, demonstrations. They get to interact with knowledge in, in, ways, that, um, in ways that a regular classroom, a pencil and paper, uh, you know, a discussion, uh, can't, you know, can't duplicate. You know, it's, it's very clear that lots of kids are not learning um, in, the traditional, in the traditional classroom. I, I, in fact, you might say that we've probably you know, push the limits of uh, of what that's you know of what that methodology is going to is going to realize. But technology, um, for a host of reasons, does offer real instructional instructional benefits for all kinds of kids. Um, and I mean, ultimately, that's you know that that's kind of the proof of the pudding. If there are better ways to help kids learn. Um, they ought they ought they ought to win out, and I think that ultimately that is that is what's going to be uh, what's going to be demonstrated. And we also have only kind of seen the tip of the iceberg with what's possible because the the um, because the system is resistant, the rate of uh, the rate of technological innovation is slower than it would be. But as there is more adoption, there will be more innovation, and uh, you know ultimately uh, ultimately I think that. Um, we will see that there are better ways to facilitate, you know, mass learning than having teachers um, in front of a classroom, you know, trying to impart knowledge and kids uh, trying to process it in groups of 25 the way it works today. Can I, I just add a, a quick comment? I, I just think it's, it's crazy for anybody to think that in another 10 or 20 years, you know, schooling is going to mean uh, 30 kids sitting in the classroom with a teacher up front feeding them a standardized curriculum in a standardized way. I mean, it, it's insane. Um, even now, you know, we have programs of online learning uh, in which coursework can literally be customized, you know, to the needs and learning styles 
of each child. You know, kids can get instant feedback on how they're doing. They can get remedial work right away on the things they don't understand. If they do understand these things, they can race ahead. They can work at their own pace. Um, and regardless of where they live, you know, whether they live in downtown Detroit or in Appalachia or anywhere, you know, they can have access to a wide range of courses um, taught in truly effective ways uh, that are basically the best that the world can provide. It's a huge equalizer. Anybody can have access to these things, and they're all customized to the individual. And this is, as John said, just beginning, and already it's this powerful. In another 10 or 20 years, I just don't think there's going to be any comparison. Anybody who thinks that schooling is going to look pretty much the same is just wrong. So let's wrap it up by, uh, by, by asking this question. So William Gibson is attributed to having said that the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So do we have examples? Would you like to give an example each of where that future is here that you really think represents what schools are going to look like in 10 years? I, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have a start. Um, I think that, uh, I think that um, uh, the future is here in bits and pieces. Um, there, are, there are examples of excellent online programs uh, being offered by some of the, the, uh, the online uh, charter schools that we've talked about, by some of the state schools, particularly uh, Florida Virtual. We have not talked at all about specialized instructional software. Um, that in an asynchronous format can help kids uh, with reading skills, help kids with math skills, help special education students in ways that a traditional uh, classroom can't. Um, there's also information systems that provide feedback about student performance, teacher performance that allows traditional uh, instruction to be improved. You see these things in bits and pieces in various, uh, various places. Um, uh, what, what we say in the book um, is that um, we, we, don't, we don't see a future in which uh, kids are largely sitting at home learning, uh, learning in isolation from other kids. Um, what we talk about are hybrid, the hybrid form of schooling where there will still be uh, places, places called schools where kids come uh, and, uh, and socialize and, and are also socialized into our into our, uh, into our democratic system where kids uh, sing and dance and engage in sports and, uh, and a lot of other things that are important to, to life and to, to growing up. But the instructional experience will uh, be vastly different because it will be a genuine mix of experiences, some directly with teachers, uh, much of it uh, online. Uh, some classes will be a mixture of online and face-to-face -face discussions. Um, that's the exciting thing about, uh, about technology and, and a more open competitive system is that it can evolve in, in various directions. Um, but as I say, our, our guess is that what you'll see in the future are schools that combine all kinds of elements into a, into a very different what we call hybrid experience for kids. Yeah, I, I'd, uh, I think John put it well, and, and uh, I don't have anything to add to that. But I, what I do want to say before we move on is that you know the the real question in all this uh, that's central to our book is in the face of this massive resistance uh, by the unions and others, uh, resistance which has succeeded over the last quarter century 
in blocking fundamental reform of the education system. How is it that technology is actually going to transform the schools? Why, why wouldn't they successfully block technology too? And the last chapter of our book is devoted to that. And the theme of that chapter is that technology, in addition to having a transformative impact on uh, learning, also has a transformative impact on politics. And it's actually the transformation in politics that makes the transformation in learning possible. Uh, because as, as technology seeps into the system, and, and you know, the revolution in information technology, which is worldwide and is transforming the fundamentals of human society, is just too big for the unions to stop completely. It is going to seep in to the education system. And as it does, it turns out that technology has a variety of consequences um, that are totally unintended that have the effect of undermining slowly and steadily over the years the power of the teachers unions. Just a couple of things. One is that uh, what this is all about is the substitution of technology for labor. You know, for the first time in modern history, we're actually able within the schools to substitute technology for teachers, to get computers and online programs to do a lot of the teaching work. Well, this means that we need a lot fewer teachers per student. And that means that over the long haul, the unions are going to take a big hit. There aren't going to be as many union members uh, uh, per student. And sheer numbers are a huge part of union power. Another thing that happens is that because teachers can be anywhere, schools can be anywhere when kids are taking courses online, teachers will no longer be totally concentrated in the district. And because they're not going to be concentrated in the district, they're going to be much more difficult to organize into unions. So you start adding these things up, and they all sort of work in the same direction to uh, undermine, slowly, union power. And the more their power is undermined, the more difficult it is for them to block reforms in the political process. And, and this, in the end, is what we really mean by the liberation of learning, because uh, when the political process opens up and the unions aren't able to block things anymore, then all kinds of basic reforms, you know, real accountability, real school choice, paper performance, getting bad teachers out of the classroom, and technological innovation can go through. And so long term, what this means is that once the special interests aren't able to block things, the nation can finally do what's right for kids and right for effective schools. That's the liberation of learning. So I had a hard time with that section in the book until I made a kind of a, a verbiage change. Because I don't think what you're saying is that computers will replace teaching. I think what you're saying is they'll replace the information uh, disbursement. That there's a component to education where um, it's just the, the transmission of knowledge, but that's not actually the teaching part. And, and my guess is, based on the, the comments I saw in the chat, that the teachers are going to agree with that as well, which is if you say it's replacing teaching, we get nervous. If you say it's actually replacing a portion of what takes place in the classroom, then I was more comfortable with it. But I think that's what I'm saying, and, and that's what John would say too. When you talk about uh, substituting uh, technology for labor, 
you're not talking about eliminating the labor, you know, or eliminating the teachers. There will just be fewer teachers, and teachers will tend to do different kinds of things and a greater variety of things than they do now. And technology will play a much bigger role. Okay, so we're going to do some Q and A yeah, here. I think I'm sorry, John. Go ahead and finish. I'm going to queue up Rush then. Oh, with the, just just very quickly, um, the. Uh, what I want to be clear about, I assume that the people chatting are not saying this, but but just to be clear, technologies are not uh, are not sort of more sophisticated textbooks. Where uh, I mean, everybody knows that you know textbooks do a heavy lift, lifting with the information, while the teachers supposedly do the teaching. I mean, good teachers obviously do do the teaching, but technology uh, is is interactive, and it not only can impart knowledge. Uh, more efficiently than a textbook, uh, but it also can provide the kind of interactivity and experiences that really uh, that 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 do teach. Um, uh, you know, you don't no, nobody learns just by reading or by listening. You learn by applying knowledge, and um, and the, the computers provide opportunities um, to do that that, um, that 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 will replace uh, some of the teacher led. Some of the teacher-led teaching. So, uh, I just want to be clear that what we see in technology is not just a replacement for the imparting of knowledge, but actually uh, a role in the teaching process um, that will replace some of the things that teachers do. Great, appreciate that clarification. I think this is going to be interesting because this is a sort of a teacher-heavy audience typically. So here's how it's going to work. Russian, I've given you the mic. You just click on the mic button in the audio box. Anybody else who wants to ask a question can raise their hands and I'll do the same. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Terry and John, thank you for, for coming and speaking to us. I want to preface this by saying I haven't read your book, so I don't know if it's notably more nuanced than uh, what you have said so far. Uh, but it, it's hard to focus in on some of the, the things that I think are promising in what you say uh, given what I believe and several other people have commented on is, is the simplistic nature of holding up the unions as kind of the boogeyman, right? Uh, I have incredible misgivings about, about my union. But I've also you know, seen two people pipe up and say, hey, North Carolina, Virginia, we don't have unions. I worked in Texas where the, the unions were, were pretty much completely powerless. And, and if, if there is, and I understand that they're powerful in, in certain places, California is certainly a good example, but you know, if, if the unions represent the 300-pound gorilla in, in the room, then you know, it may well be that it's the, you know, it's the no child left behind and bubble testing that represents the blue whale breaking apart the structure. And, and so you know, if, if people are going to respond badly to you know, what you have to say about unions, even if they don't like their unions, it's hard to kind of make those points come through in, I think, a, a more productive way. And so you know, I hope that, that as, as you, you know, talk about these things, that you know, you're, you're, getting us, you're getting us closer to, some, some, uh, to that point where we have good examples. Because that's, that's, where, that's where education does change, when it has an example to look at, not just an idea to, to, to try to build. Thanks. Let me just briefly respond. John may want to say something. Um, uh, the power of the unions does vary uh, in different areas of the country. Basically, um, uh, in the South, uh, they are at their weakest. Um, they are extraordinarily powerful, however, throughout the country. And they're even powerful in the South. They just aren't as powerful. 
Um, I, I think what we've done in the book is to simply speak the truth. Uh, the unions are, in fact, far and away the most powerful force in the politics of education. And I, I think what you're saying is, well, teachers respond badly when we say that or when we write that. But the fact is, it's true. Right? Now, it may be that some of your experiences in Virginia or Texas or whatever uh, haven't been consistent with this, that you haven't seen really powerful unions. But we take a national perspective, uh, and what we're saying is, in fact, the truth uh, across the country. And I, I think that's our responsibility, is to just put it out there. And if some teachers react negatively to it, you know, that's unfortunate, but uh, the truth is what it is. So I think what Rushton said, and, and maybe got lost a little, but, but I, I think I heard it, was that if the unions are the 300-pound gorilla, he doesn't think that that even compares to standardized testing as an issue, which he as a teacher sees as being the real problem, what constrains him from being an effective teacher. Rushton, did I get that right? Well, feel free to grab the mic again, because no one else has raised their hands, and, and you deserve to drill down. Okay, uh, fair enough. The, the idea that there are going to be teachers who don't like what you have to say uh, is, is, is kind of an, I mean, that's a given, right? But there are a lot of teachers in, in every environment uh, in terms of union strength who, who have, have major misgivings about the unions. I mean, we're not fans of our own unions, right? You know, the, the problem is, is that if the discussion is designed merely to, uh, to keep the political argument going and, and to ensure the place of those who have a high place within that argument, then you know, nothing, you know, nothing is, is moving in a better direction. You know, when John was talking about the possibilities of, uh, of technology and education, when we can start holding up examples that are working, that's when things start changing because it, it's, it's an example that will, uh, you know, of, a, of a successful model that will cause people within the system to, to be bold enough to try something as opposed to just people having good ideas. Uh, you know, I'd love for, for us to be more flexible for sure, but it, it's hard to take seriously the larger argument when, you know, time and time and time again in the face of so many different variables that, that have an impact on the system, it keeps coming back to, oh, those teachers' unions. You know, I mean, come on. I'm not sure we need to build down any further on that, John and Terry, but you're welcome to respond. Um, well, I, I think that um, uh, if, if you read the book, I think you'll find that the political analysis is, uh, is, is, more, is more nuanced. Um, I think there's, there's always danger when you draw attention to um, unpleasant facts and you focus on them that people may think that uh, you know, you're engaging in something of a rant. I assure you, we're not. And, and, and by the way, the, the questioner wasn't accusing us of that. But, but we're, you know, we're accustomed to that kind of kind of reception. Um, the book does show, does point out with very systematic research, though, some things that are pretty interesting. Um, you know, we're all familiar with uh, with education with Education Week, and Education Week uh, does an evaluation every year uh, in their Technology Counts uh, uh, edition. Uh, where they, they, you know, they, they give us a, uh, uh, an assessment of, of where the states are in adopting various kinds of technology. And we just took a look at uh, 
at the technology scores that the 50 states received. And it turns out, it's actually pretty remarkable, that the stronger the unions in a state, the worse the technology grades. Now, that doesn't mean that the, that the unions block everything or that in states where unions are weak, they adopt everything. But as the political process plays out with the, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, um, uh, technology is embraced less often when teachers' unions are involved because it's, uh, because it's threatening. And that, that's just it's a very important fact. It doesn't explain everything, but, it, uh, but it's, it, is the, it, it is the most important fact in explaining why we're not, not moving faster. Um, you know, having said that, uh, having said that, we, we think that the system is moving toward uh, a more open one. Uh, the influence of unions is, is weakening, and uh, the influence of establishment interests is weakening. And that means that it will be easier for technology to be evaluated on its merits, and uh, to, you know, and to begin to make, you know, to make decisions about uh, really what's best for kids, what's most efficient, what's most effective. Um, it's just it's just very hard for those things to happen uh, right now. Most most technology, and this is kind of to shift the discussion a little bit. Most technology that is adopted uh, by school districts right now is adopted uh, around the edges. It's adopted for kids who are failing and need remediation. It's adopted for kids who've dropped out. It's adopted you know, occasionally for kids who need advanced placement, but the district can't afford to offer a specialized course. But, um, uh, but, but districts have not, uh, have not, with rare, rare exception, uh, allowed technology to be the dominant form of instruction for, you know, for regular kids in the core curriculum. And, um, there can only really be one reason for that, and that is that um, that would cause people to lose jobs, and that would truly be disruptive. Okay, so I want to give the mic to George. George, you, can you turn your mic on? Okay, so while George works on his mic, there, there was a distinction made in the chat between uh, the local unions and more national influence. I think it would be interesting to go back and kind of read that uh, later. I'm interested in kind of drilling down on that a little. George, I don't know if you're going to run your um, audio setup wizard, but you're also welcome to put your question in the chat. Anybody else have a question for Terry or John? We've got a few minutes left, just a few, probably time for one or two more questions. This has sure been fascinating for me. Uh, Rushton, I appreciate your voicing your concerns. I think uh, you raised some, uh, some good and interesting questions. I think it does presume that the technology is beneficial and will be transformative. And, and um, that if the, that the, the unions blocking the technology becomes a correlation. I, I guess I'm very interested if anybody feels like technology is not necessarily the answer, although that's typically the side I come down on. Doesn't look like we're hearing from George. Hello? Now George can't hear us. So there's a question in the chat. Uh, do you write about higher ed or just K-12 in the book, Terry and John? We only we only wrote uh, we only wrote in, in real detail about uh, about K twelve. 
Um, but I will say, and this is mentioned in there, um, one of the things that uh, one of the things that drove us to um, investigate this whole area of technology and education, and to uh, you know, and come to believe that it has transformative possibilities, is that in higher education, um, in higher education, online education, online instruction, online education has, uh, in very short period of time, uh, achieved a very important, uh, a very important, and uh, what's beginning to be a transformative role. Um, uh, you know, lots of people, lots of people, young people, um, uh, older people in higher education are finding that they can learn quite a lot. And uh, people instructing, professors, are finding that it can be a very rewarding instructional experience. So um, I think it's uh, you know, something like 20-25% of all degrees that are issued today include some uh, online instruction in higher education. So it's already, you know, it's already transforming higher ed, and, um, and you know, partly for that reason, we think it's, it's, uh, you know, it's inevitable in K-12. Okay, so that seems like a great way to finish. John, did you have any closing comments? Uh, I only want to say thank you for the opportunity to reach out to your listeners. I, uh, your listeners probably are not aware that, or maybe they are aware that I'm only on a telephone. I would have liked to see the, liked to see the chat racing through, but my, uh, uh, but my technology failed me tonight. Uh, so, um, uh, but I want to thank, I want to thank you and thank all of the participants for, uh, for their interest. Uh, and uh, you know, feel feel free to reach out to us. Uh, uh, by email, if you have further questions or anything else we can, uh, anything else we can do to help. Terry, final thoughts from you. Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity uh, uh, and thank your audience for for listening in. Um, uh, you know, I, one of the just a, 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 a closing comment. You know, I, I think technology is going to transform this education system. It is this huge train you know, coming down the tracks. And it is surprising um, how small an issue this is. Uh, as people talk about education reform and as they talk about how to improve the schools and as they talk about what's likely to happen in the future, um, technology rarely sort of figures prominently in the conversation. It's going to in future years. And I think it's conversations uh, like these. I think that will uh, sort of snowball. Uh, and I think it's going to happen very quickly. This, this is going to be uh, the transformative issue for the future. Um, and I think it's going to happen pretty quickly. Okay. okay. That's, that's, I'm sorry. Terry, you got to turn your mic off. That's a great way to end. Let's, I'm applauding. I'm using the little icon at the bottom which uh, indicates applause. Uh, I, I don't think everybody's in general agreement, but it's sure been thought-provoking. And I loved the book. Uh, I didn't agree with everything, but I found it enormously thought-provoking and think it's a, a great place to, to have good discussions. I've put the web tour up. I'm sorry. Well, I've put up the survey in a web tour. Uh, Terry, please don't close that down, because if you do, it will close down for everybody. But I would appreciate uh, anybody who's able to take a minute and fill that out. It helps us to know what we're doing well at Future of Education. This has been uh, a light night for Future of Education. I think a lot of people are on vacation. So thank you for coming out, audience. Thanks to Illuminate for providing this platform. 
please visit uh, Learn Central and um, learn more about uh, that network and Illuminate. Thanks for, for being here, Terry and John. Really appreciate it. I think you did a great job. Our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay, so uh, John and Terry, please feel free to just depart. Uh, your, your time is valuable and you don't need to stick around. I'll stick around for a couple more minutes in case there are questions in the chat. Uh, again, many thanks. There will be a recording posted at futureofeducation.com uh, probably by tomorrow. And uh, I'll be sure to send the chat log to Terry and John so they get a chance to see it. Uh, thanks everybody for being here. Thank you. Steve, okay to kick in? Absolutely. I think this is this is a good example of uh, what happens when the uh, speakers don't have access to the chat. I mean, it's still good content, right? But uh, but man, they 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 really I think would have would have approached this a little differently had they uh, had they seen the comments. Not not simply because there was disagreement. But because you know there was the feeling that they weren't they weren't moving beyond a simplistic approach. Well, I found that interesting as well, and I think in part, you know, Terry had access to the comments, but I think he's not used to following them. And if you're not used to following them, it's very fast. And my guess is he didn't put it into the wide view. And in that case, it's even harder to follow them. Um, but I also think that in part, you know, they have an argument for the book. They have a, a, a position, and. You know, in reading through it, I was very surprised at my own response because I'm very much in the in the camp of technology being transformative, but found myself responding, I think largely because of my interactions in the last few years with educators, with some pushback. And I think in part because of language and you know, teachers can be replaced by computers, you know, doesn't translate well. But I also think because um, Making politics the number one argument seems to leave out so many other sort of important issues, and they may be right, but it's still there are still other important issues I wanted to talk about. Yeah, the um, it's hard to evaluate whether they're right because they were so focused on on the political argument, right? And, and in a sense, the question then becomes, okay. Are you really talking about these things because you have something to contribute, or have you simply established your your place in the political argument and you're riding that wave? And I, you know, I I don't jump to that conclusion, but it does kind of look that way when when time and time and time again, you know, they come back to the unions. I mean, <laughs> come on, you know, that, they, they I just feel they could do better than that. Well, I think maybe this will help to clarify it. They're they're discussing, I think, sort of objectively looking at what they believe is an historical moment where education is going to transform. They they don't really talk about pedagogy. I mean, they talk about test scores and they talk about established measures, but they haven't. They're not really talking about teaching and learning specifically. They're just talking about what they think is the impact is going to be on the structure of education. So maybe that's part of the difficulty is that a lot of us want to talk about the teaching, and they're not really focused on that at all. That's a great point. Uh, and 
And I think that it takes away from their audience to be upfront about that. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there really, you know, there, there's just, there's so much. You know, it's hard to talk about education and not pull the entire uh, big bag of issues onto the table. I mean, to, to focus in on anything specific uh, is, is difficult at, at best, right? And, and you know, if, if it's true, and, and I heard this, I don't know if it's valid or not, if it's true that, you know, some majority of teachers are coming out of the bottom quarter of their college graduating classes, then, you know, how can you possibly talk about, you know, ed the educational system without talking about teaching in a more meaningful and I'm not sure that's the discussion that they are having. Well, and, and the question then becomes, uh, are, are they not having that because they want to focus on, on the structure and what they see happening with it politically, which is, I think, the kind way of looking at it. And then there's the cynical way of looking at it, which is they, they you know, they want to focus on the politics because it, it gives them, you know, it, it gives them a megaphone. Uh, and w without a more, you know, with, w without a more nuanced discussion with people who are in the setting and understand more of the complexities, they, they don't do anything to, to move people from the cynical perspective on their work to, to the kinder perspective on their work. I think there's, maybe I've misspoken too, because I think there is a presumption uh, about success in schools. And, and there's a whole chapter in which they sort of list the, they take it for granted that there's an understood and accepted larger belief about what successful education is. And, and it involves specifically um, things that I would say are sort of part, more part of a conservative agenda. And while I lean toward those, I think it's an assumption in the book, although they do, I mean, they're, they're very clear about that. I don't think they claim it as an assumption. I think they claim it as a universal. But they, their bias is a part of the book. Agreed. At any rate, good, good having them on. I, I got, uh, got that email about uh, 15 minutes before the start, and, and that, that's what jumped me in. <laughs> I was a little worried. We only had one person in the room. I thought, this is going to be a disaster. No, no. I mean, you, you, had, uh, you had over 30 at one point. So, so you know, for, for the summer, I, I would say that, that, that that's, that's a long way from a disaster. Well, what's interesting is pretty typically for the last six to nine months, I've advertised these the day before or the day of. And I got some really hard pushback last week from people saying, you know, it would really be helpful if you would give us a list a week or two in advance. So that's what I did this week is I sent an email, you know, several days in advance. And I think the reality is a lot of people don't come unless they get a reminder the day of. I'd agree with that. Um, although, and I hope this, I hope this isn't bad in some way. Um, I I would not have been here if I if I didn't sense the urgency in the email. <laughs> the desperation. <laughs> you guys come. <laughs> um, you know, still, still. I mean, it, it was it was it was certainly it was certainly an interesting thing, and and I don't know if there will be any kind of uh, uh, venue for them to react in some way. And, and I would say not in speech, right? Um, but but in writing, to to having read 
what happened in the chat. I mean, a huge portion of that chat was a discussion about the mechanics of, I, I think his name was George Mayfield's uh, online school. Right. I mean, and, and, and one, one possibility there is that, that that was more interesting than what people thought they were hearing based on what might have been a, a simplistic message that that just kept coming back. May, maybe that's the case. I, well, I think that was maybe the point you were trying to make was that um, in, in, in many ways, George was corroborating a, a lot of what, what we've been feeling thinking uh, in a positive way. And there were there were also examples of negative experiences with alternative or chartered or online schools. But I think maybe what you were saying was, I'm much more interested in hearing from George in the trenches about that success than I am hearing that the unions are blocking improvement in the schools. I think that might describe what a lot of the participants. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm coming from an unusual spot on this, right? I, I was principal of an online school for 18 months, one of the most intellectually stimulating experiences of my life. You know, I've been a teacher for 20 years, you know, Laud. <laughs> it's been 20 years. I mean, I've been a teacher for 20 years, and and you know, and I'm incredibly skeptical about you know the unions and their ability to you know to make good things happen. But you know, I just I just wanted I wanted them to be able to uh, convince me that they were about more than being on one side of a political argument, and and. Maybe I'm, I'm imposing too much of my own feelings about what's possible in educational discussion by pushing that. Well, and you know, I think um, we're probably not their standard audience. Nor did they, I think, know that. Um, you know, I, I think they, they lumped. I, I think I think it sounded at times like they were equating having teachers at, in an audience as having teacher union supportive people in an audience. And that, I, you know, it just hasn't been my experience. I mean, I, I've, been in, I've been in several different settings, and, you know, people are somewhere between uh, the unions are, uh, you know, are, are a problem to the unions are a necessary evil to the unions aren't so bad. And, and, all, and almost never the unions are great, all right, unless, unless they're part of the union power structure. I almost never hear that from people who are like, oh, thank goodness for the unions. They're just wonderful. You know, I mean, the only people who would say anything close to that are people who are part of, are part of the typically elected structure of what a lot of people feel is just a necessary problem. Yeah, well, I'd say that was sure interesting. I'm, uh, I actually have to go. I'm sorry to do that. Oh, all good, all good, all good. I, I need to... to Something I've been not doing for the past hour and a half myself. But, yeah, but thanks for taking <laughs> pity on me. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. No problem. Good stuff, and I will talk to you again soon. Thanks, Rushton. Hey, thanks, hey, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Very and cool. And Elise, if you're still there, and Barb, I'm going to actually kick everybody out of the room so the recording will process. All right, we kick. Okay, bye.